0: Hello, everybody. I'm Lou Dobbs. Welcome to The Great America Show. The marxist war on President Trump is widening. Not only is President Trump now contending with a local prosecutor's indictment, he's also facing another political prosecution in Georgia, Fulton County, home of Atlanta, trying to conjure up charges based on the president's phone call urging the Georgia Secretary of State to find some votes to carry the narrow election for Trump. It's just another nuisance, but nonetheless, it has to be dealt with, as does another special counsel investigation by the deep blue Marxist Dem prosecutor, Jack Smith, looking to charge President Trump on the classified documents in the Mar-a-Lago case and January 6. Again, pure partisan politics, and again, Smith and his band of partisans are activists seeking to destroy Trump, as are they all. Our guest today is the highly respected defense attorney, Tim Parlatori. He represents President Trump in the classified documents and January 6th allegations of the special counsel. Tim, great to have you back with us here on The Great America Show, whether it's Washington or Florida, New York or Georgia. President Trump has an unprecedented, full-on marxist assault against him. What's your sense of what President Trump faces with a number of these cases of outright political persecution.
1: Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Lou. Just to be clear, I represent the president in all things special counsel. So, you know, the January 6th and the Mar-a-Lago documents case. And so uh, I do not represent him in Georgia or in New York, and so I can't necessarily comment specifically about that. But, you know, really what you see right now is a coordinated... um, or a simultaneous, rather, effort by these multiple uh, prosecuting agencies to try and bring um, you know something that could potentially uh, remove him from the race for the presidency is really how I see it.
0: I have to say that's as a layman. That's the way I see it, too. And I think there are too many laymen, by the way, trying to interpret much of this as attorneys might or judges might uh, you know, straight old common sense uh, as what is, you know, sometimes what you're looking at is what's really there. Uh, and to see what the state of New York is doing in various jurisdictions, whether it be the Manhattan DA, uh, the the attorney general, it, it just it's absolutely disgusting and appalling. And and I've got to ask you. This is a bit of a follow up question. Sure. Uh, and it is we have watched this president politically persecuted by law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, the Democrat National Committee, uh, a a presidential campaign uh, uh, committee, uh, and impeached twice, two special counsels now, and never one one iota of wrongdoing. At what points do the courts take into consideration the fact that this is, as uh, Beryl Howell, the uh, former chief judge in D.C., would say, prima facie evidence uh, of wrongdoing on the part of the prosecutors, the investigators, and the deep state? Well, I
1: mean, I think that it is indicative when you have this many people uh, coming after somebody in any Possible angle that they can, you know, that, that's indicative of a deeper problem, and it's not, um, you know, th- this is not like, you know, when you have gangsters that, you know, every prosecutor wants to put away the gangsters because they're actually doing some harm to society. You know, this is, you know, coordinated efforts by uh, politically aligned uh, individuals, you know, within the criminal justice system. Uh, that really, in in a lot of these cases, more mirrors um, political goals than legitimate criminal goals. I mean, I, you know, as an attorney, I, I'm a criminal attorney, okay? I fight things out in the courtroom. I'm not a campaign guy. I don't have anything to do with the campaign or anything like that. And so for me, this is very unique to be able to be in a case where I have to fight it out while thinking about all of these other potential you know, political considerations and the motivations of the other side and, you know, what, um, you know, how a different case with a different uh, president with different documents in a different state might affect my client and things like that. You know, I'm used to very, you know, hey diddle diddle straight up the middle cases where the you know, the prosecutors and I are, you know, across the line from one another, and we're just fighting it out based on the facts and the law of our case, as opposed to all of these other considerations. And that's, you know, that to me is indicative of why this is just such a different
0: scenario. Yeah, to me at times, Tim, I will tell you straightforwardly, uh, if we go back to the 90s and, if you will, the, the ebbing of the heydays of the... Uh, Cosa Nostra, the organized crime, particularly in New York, uh, you know, it's as if they had control of the courts. They had the prosecutors and all of the good guys suddenly had to defend themselves. Uh, That's the behavior. Uh, We've watched four consecutive FBI directors lie through their teeth uh, to Congress. We have watched uh, FBI agents try to frame a president of the United States, successfully frame his national security advisor. We have watched uh, the hatching of conspiracies uh, that were put into kinetic motion uh, in black and white, real, tangible conspiracies uh, and actions to carry out those conspiracies to overthrow a president, and still nothing has happened. There is something who in, if you will, uh, the atmospherics of Washington, D.C., and political America. And I think that thing is lawfare, because right now you don't have rights unless you can afford the attorneys necessary to deal with the system. Uh, Because of lawfare, you don't have to do anything wrong. All you have to do is be charged with wrongdoing. Uh, This is a new moment in which judges are as corrupt as any one of the attorneys uh, that they are employing in the department of justice and they are all on the same side. Am I overstating the case? Um you know I, I'm gonna take a little bit more of a
1: nuanced point of view and you know don't forget I began my career working for and being mentored by a lot of the defense attorneys who worked in that heyday of the Cosa Nostra. Um uh, I think that you know to my mind a lot of these things were already there. I mean, the FBI is an organization, you know, built on Hoover, um, and so it had. It's an organization that has certain institutional rot um, to begin with. Now, certainly, there's a lot of you know great and honest agents out there, but. Its leadership structure has always had problems. And you know the fact that it is both a law enforcement agency agency and also a member of the intelligence community, I think is problematic. Um, the fact that it' um, that its jurisdiction completely overlaps with so many other agencies uh, is problematic and causes turf wars. And you know what you're talking about with the two systems of justice, all of that has always been there. The difference is that it's now much more overt it's now being used um, much more openly in the political um arena whereas before it was being used you know kind of more against you know private citizens and, and in a lot of other ways kind of outside of d c and I think that really um everything I agree with what you just said, but I think a lot of that is more of of an awakening of people um to the reality that people in, in my profession have seen for a very long time so um and and it, it, again I'm not going to comment on you know any ind- individual judges or things like that but I think that the the DOJ the FBI um you know rot is is something that we've seen for a long time it's just nobody, people are finally starting to uh, to see it outside of my community.
0: And I think importantly, uh, for the first time, we are watching a president who was assailed by lawfare in various forms a and a political party, uh, the Democrat Party, in cooperation with the, the deep state, the permanent bureaucracy, uh, if you will, uh, and the result has been spectacular. Uh, the fireworks have been immense. The, the injury to the, to the national, uh, I think, to the, the national heart has been profound. Uh, we are a different people right now because what we have seen our government do, which has turned the power of our government, as we have always thought of it, irrespective of some of the, the rot, as you put it, uh, being coincidental and not pervasive, I think, But now the American people see their federal government for what it is, and that is uh, an institution that has declared the American people to be its enemy. Uh, And and that is a new new horizon to contend with. Yeah, it's it's always it's always been
1: there. And it's just that, you know, people haven't cared about it as much because maybe it didn't personally affect them. Maybe it didn't affect anybody that they knew or that they supported. I mean, you know, years ago, the FBI in, in Boston, for example, framed innocent men for murder that they didn't commit, intentionally framed them uh, because they were trying to protect their cooperating witness, Whitey Bulger, and they justified it based on the idea that the people that they framed who were innocent of that murder, well, they're Italian gangsters, so they probably did something else. More of those guys died in jail for a murder he didn't commit. This is this is stuff that's always been there. It's just never really been out in the open um in in this way because as long as it's targeting you know people that we don't sympathize with um you know okay go go ahead so the FBI is committing a whole bunch of crimes to take out gangsters you know a lot of people don't really care about that but now that it's Now that it's targeting um, political
0: figures, um, it's hitting a little bit closer to home, I think. Yeah, very close to home. Have you ever heard of the FBI having a portal, just out of curiosity, in a law firm before we found out that uh, Perkins Coy had just such an arrangement with the FBI? I'm just curious about that.
1: that, That's not something I'm going to comment on directly.
0: (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Uh, the uh, <laughs> now I'm going to start musing over that even harder. Uh, <laughs> the the idea that the FBI right now uh, is investigating on the, uh, across the board once again uh, the president of the United States uh, Jack Smith. Is it your sense that we are going to be well served this time by a special counsel? Well, so. I
1: I kind of look at it from a more base perspective of you know and I'm going to speak specifically to the to the documents case here surely um I personally don't believe that the um that the alleged classified documents case is something the DOJ should be involved with at all I don't believe that Jack Smith should have been appointed because I don't think that the discovery of documents is something that should have been referred to DOJ to begin with. Um, I don't think that her should have been appointed to investigate Joe Biden uh, for his classified documents. I don't think that anybody should be appointed to investigate Mike Pence for his alleged um, possession of classified documents because what those three cases demonstrate to me is not criminal intent on behalf of any former elected official or current elected official, but rather institutional failure within the White House on their document handling procedures, institutional failures within GSA and the National Archives in how they handle um, government of presidents and vice presidents when they leave office and and what they what they do with packing up those documents and really to me. These cases all should have been handled, not by bringing DOJ into it at all, but rather by having. The intelligence community assign investigators to do an administrative investigation. As to the spillage of these classified documents or allegedly classified documents, many of them have probably been declassified. But why would these documents have even gotten outside of a skiff to begin with? Uh, that classified environment to begin with. How did they get into boxes that would then get shipped down to uh, Mar-a-Lago or Delaware? Um, not whether the former president has committed a crime by allowing sealed boxes to be sitting in a storage room in the basement of Mar-a-Lago. That's not a crime. Yeah, you know, Really, what we have here throughout all of these is a, it's a consistent pattern. And think of it this way. Back in October, the National Archives released a statement um, in, in response to allegations that there were classified documents from the Obama administration being held up in Chicago. And they said, for every president, from Reagan through Obama, we obtained a facility in the city where the future presidential library was to be built, and we stored all of the presidential documents in that secure facility, so no potentially classified documents ever were outside of NARA's control. In that statement, what they are saying is that since the Presidential Records Act has been signed, there are two presidents that they failed to provide that facility for, and the vice presidents, they also failed to provide that facility for. And if you look at those, you'll see Jimmy Carter, who signed the Presidential Records Act, found classified documents in his house. President Trump, they found documents with classification markings in his house. Vice presidents, most recent, Mike Pence, found documents with classification markings in his house. Joe Biden found documents with classification markings in his house. Dick Cheney were way too afraid to look in his house, see what <laughs> might be there.
0: That might uh, be an originating uh, uh, destination. But
1: but that, uh, but that, that's the point is that everybody that the National Archives doesn't provide a facility for to hold the documents when they leave the White House, they find documents in their house. What this says to me is. This, is not, this should not be a big neon sign to say, hey, let's bring in Jack Smith and Robert Hur to go criminally investigate the former presidents. This should be a sign to the House and Senate Select Committees on Intelligence to, hey, you need to legislate a change here because the White House clearly does not handle classified documents the same way that the intelligence agencies and the military handles them. So you need to correct the document handling procedures in the White House, and you should amend the Presidential Records Act to codify and mandate what NARA says that they've done for all of these other former presidents, and extend it to the vice presidents, because if you do all those things, there would not have been a single piece of paper even brought to Mar-a-Lago. And I I, I would say to you this. President Trump had a much shortened um, transition window than his predecessors. You know, certainly Bill Clinton up through Obama, they all had four years to prepare for their eviction, right? And you know that that is certainly a factor. He only he really only had about a week and a half. You know, from from this, from January seventh on. Um, but I suspect that if Nara had gone to him during that week and a half and said, "Mr. President," We need to talk about documents. Um, I don't know what you want to do because you know, Congress never actually mandated what we do exactly, but here's what we did for your predecessor. We'd like to just rent the facility down in Palm Beach and move all the documents there." And he'd probably look at them and say, okay, you know, this is being rented by the government, or do I have to pay for it? No, 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 sir. The government's paying for it. Hey, what is it? Fine. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I, think- I asked him. Not a single document would have ever made it to Mar-a-Lago. They didn't ask. Did you ever put that hy- that uh, hypothetical before the president, just out of curiosity?
1: I, I, I because of privilege issues, I'm not going to discuss any specific conversations I've had with him.
0: But I have to I have to say that sounded just exactly like the president would uh, <laughs> reason through it. I, I I have to say you make a, a terrific case. Uh, I, I come at it from a little different direction. I don't understand how the the National Archivist suddenly has the power to bring in the Justice Department and create holy hell uh, for a, a former president, and well, also take. I, I mean, this is ridiculous. That, that's it. Why
1: did they refer it to the Justice Department? Why did they? Why did they? A not not rent the facility. Why did they? Be you know not take the actions necessary to. Um, you know, to smooth the transition, and then once they found this stuff, why did they call DOJ as opposed to calling ODNI? I mean, here's the, here's it, a, here's it would make a, much more sense to call ODNI and say, "Hey, there's some documents that were found out of place. Can you go and uh and and take a look at this and see if there's any more?"
0: I think the only reason that makes any sense is they intended to harass, uh, and assail this president. Uh, President Donald Trump, uh, this is a this is an act that's been coordinated between the attorneys uh, to me, uh, quite obviously. Uh, it's been a, a, an organized effort. Uh, suddenly, President Biden's attorneys are being notified and, the, and they just happen to discover some documents on the 2nd of November after raiding the president's uh, Mar-a-Lago residence on the 8th of August. I, I mean, we're in we're in la-la land with these people. This is far too much coincidence. You know,
1: it's interesting when you mentioned juvenile, um, you know, without. Denigrating any specific individuals, I will say that the the team that uh, the Jack Smith inherited, um, and I say inherited, not assembled, because what we're talking about here is the people from the National Security Division who originally started this whole investigation. And then once uh, Merrick Garland decided to appoint Jack Smith. From my perspective, it didn't change anything. I was still dealing with the same people. And in fact, it was quite a long time before they even changed their signature blocks. I mean, for a month after Jack Smith was appointed, they were still signing subpoenas as, you know, being part of the National Security Division. Um, And so really, you know, to me, Jack Smith is, you know, he's he's an additional layer of decision making in between them and, and Merrick Garland. And he's somewhat of a fig leaf to... Try to claim that this is an independent investigation, but the reality is the people who began this investigation under Merrick Garland at the request of national archives are still doing it. And quite frankly, from everything I've seen when I compare their conduct of this investigation to how I would normally you know, rate, you know, the U.S. attorney's offices from, say, the Southern or Eastern District of New York that are actual criminal investigators and criminal prosecutors, uh, it is very different how they handle this case. And I think that that is one of the um, the unseen themes here is that when you have National Security Division attorneys playing criminal prosecutor and using tools that they're not, you know, really um Experienced in using it creates a um, a very different environment than what you would normally have in a criminal investigation
0: well that's interesting and and, I, and I, I see precisely what what you mean there is so much that is uh different about the situation. it's not just atmospherics it's processes, it's elements uh, i I want I want to turn to the issue of these documents that are sealed—the things you can't talk about. Obviously, defending the the president of the United States, uh, the you actually were called to testify before the grand jury uh, uh, on this documents case. G- give us a can you can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, so I'll, I'll quarrel with one thing
1: that you said there. I was not actually called. I went. Okay. They asked for a custodian of records for the office of the former president, which is a, it's an entity that's created under the former president's act Um, to be an office that would, uh, that every former president has. They were hoping probably for some Mar-a-Lago staffer to come in and that they could beat up on how little they knew about where documents were. Uh, And we discussed it and we made a decision. I chose to personally go in there instead of sending some junior staffer. Because ultimately what they wanted to talk about was our efforts at compliance and I am the one that hired the team and oversaw all efforts at compliance uh, with the subpoena post raid. And so I was the person in the best position to to give that uh, information to the jury. And as a trial attorney. Yeah, I'm not a former prosecutor. I've been on the defense my entire life. I've never been in a grand jury room before. Um, not, not saying that I wanted to do it for sightseeing purposes, but I talk to juries for a living, and the opportunity to go in there and talk to this grand jury and explain to them what we had actually done and all of the efforts that the the President Trump made to ensure that uh, that he was complying and that. You know, really, this is not at all a case of, you know, willfully retaining documents, but rather willfully returning documents, and in spite of, as opposed to because of, the um, the aggressive um, oppositional tactics of the National Security Division lawyers. Um, yeah, the opportunity to go behind enemy lines and to actually talk
0: directly to their grand jury,
1: I jumped at that opportunity.
0: I can imagine you would. And I have to wonder why in the world they would. I, I, have to, I have to imagine that they were very nervous about having the president's representative, legal representative, uh, walk through the door instead of, as you put it, a, uh, a, a clerical uh, person uh, that they might have otherwise expected from Mar-a-Lago. Well, and, and one of the things
1: that surprised me, when i went in there and they did not want me they they fought to try and get somebody else in there but they didn't have a choice they got me um one of the things i was shocked at is the willingness with which they were openly misleading the jury and committing misconduct right in front of me uh and obviously i'm not a i'm, I'm not a very you know passive or meek witness every time they did it i i pointed it out um, but if they're willing to do that in front of me, what are they doing to the other witnesses? Yeah. What are they doing when I'm not in the room? What are they doing to witnesses that aren't lawyers and they don't know any better? Um, you know, we, we had a lot of very tense exchanges in there where they would ask completely improper questions, and I would tell them that it's an improper question, and then they would you know, turn to the jury and say, so you're refusing to provide this information to them. Like, no, I'm not refusing to provide anything. You're asking a question that calls for privilege. I'm ethically prohibited from answering that question. Even if I wanted to, even if it's something that's helpful, I am, my license prohibits me from answering that question without checking with the client first. And you know, you're an attorney. And there were a couple of times where actually I may have started cross-examining the prosecutor in front of the grand jury, and then you know her assistant had to jump in and save her to remind everybody that I was the witness because it was just it was
0: persistent wrongful conduct. It's, it's stunning. Uh, it, can you share an example of uh, their improper questioning? Oh, sure. I mean, and, and just to be clear, their
1: sealing orders. That would prohibit me from talking about any of the alleged litigation over privilege issues, but when it comes to what happens within the grand jury, um, things that happen inside the grand jury room are secret. But that secrecy order does not apply to the witness. So I am allowed to talk about this stuff. Um, And they they would consistently be asking me about my conversations with the president. And of course, I would continuously tell them that I couldn't do that. And at one point, she actually asked me, Well, you know, there are exceptions to privilege, right? Yeah. And in fact, the client can waive the privilege. I said, Yes. And she says, And if the president's being so cooperative, why hasn't he allowed you to share his conversations with the grand jury today? Now, had that question been asked in a trial, jury trial, the judge would have flown down from the bench and immediately, you know, immediately declared a mistrial, and yet here, nothing. Yeah. And instead, I just looked at her and I said, are you really doing this? And she said, yes. And so I had to turn to the jury to explain to them how completely and totally improper and unconstitutional that question is. There are constitutional rights, which we have to respect, And if somebody is invoking one of those constitutional rights, that is not something that anyone in the criminal justice system can use against them. And the fact that the president has not waived his privilege to allow me to come in and tell about all my conversations with him, to even suggest that that is evidence of guilt is complete and total misconduct. Uh, And in fact, because we got this one tiny window into what happened there. I wouldn't be surprised if we eventually get to the point of being able to see all of these grand jury transcripts and find out that there's persistent misconduct throughout. So is pervasive that the entire grand jury proceedings are tainted and need to be tossed
0: out. And if you toss out the proceedings, you toss out the charges, do you? Not if they were to be charges. Right, it's a defective grand jury proceeding. So uh, this is... Uh, th- and everything there seems to be as you described the the obviously the the woman uh, prosecutor who was uh, talking uh, of totally I, G- I i mean that's she's she's an absolute zealot by just by the nature of what she was doing only a zealot would go so far as to trample constitutional rights of a, of a president and with his attorney in the chair before her. And that's exactly
1: the issue, is that ordinarily in grand jury, when somebody objects to a question and invokes a privilege, ordinary prosecutors drop the question and move on. If they want to get that answer, and if they believe that there's an exception to the privilege, they'll deal with it later in a motion to compel. They do not fight with the witness and then try to mislead the jury in front of the jury. It's totally improper.
0: And I don't know if this is improper of me to ask, but did you notice the reaction of the jury to to that particular incident, that episode uh, in her questioning of you?
1: I think that the jury was a little bit surprised. Um, And that may be more that they were surprised at my response. (laughs) <laughs> um than the question but um then obviously I don't want to talk too much about you know this specific jury right. but they um you know I I think that they were definitely you know a jury is what it is supposed to be it's a cross-section of society and you know some people uh, are more receptive to certain things than others some people have certain beliefs um and I do think that they they saw that this was um Improper, and if if they didn't, then you know that's that's probably the conditioning that they've been putting them through with this.
0: And this this has been uh, nothing less than a an attack on executive privilege, the president's privileges. I, I mean, Beryl Howell, uh, you go through. Have you books. ever
1: seen a case with so much? Litigation over privileges. I mean, if you can't, I make have a never. Case, if you can't make a case without piercing every single privilege out there, we've gone for attorney-client, we've gone for executive, we've gone for speech and debate. I'm, I'm waiting for them to subpoena his priest and his doctor next, so they could test those privileges too. Well. <laughs> Don't give them any ideas, because it is. I, I, the priest I, and the doctor have nothing to say other than he's completely innocent. So. <laughs> right?
0: it, 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 it's just extraordinary. And the American people, I mean, we are, I, I, I certainly will not speak for America, but I have to say a huge number of Americans, certainly those who supported Donald Trump, who support him today, uh, are, are stunned that we're watching a president, stripped of the powers of his office while he was uh, sitting president because uh, he was, I mean, he was undercut at every turn uh, by intelligence agencies, by the FBI, by attorneys, a form of lawfare at the federal level dealing with the executive. And now as a post uh, president, uh, he is being told he will have to put on sackcloth and ashes uh, for, for conduct that he did not uh, that he's not guilty of, and, and hope to hell that they gets at least a reasonable uh, grand jury that will protect him from these zealot prosecutors who love to persecute him and have for seven years. Is that an unfair statement?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think that it's it's not only that. Obviously, the appellate courts are, are there. But, you know, one of the interesting things that, again, something I don't normally deal with in these cases is that here— you have, a, you have a companion case, if you will, uh, where the, the documents in Mar-a-Lago were in boxes that were brought down. They were only there for two years. And then you have a companion case where the documents were there for more like seven years. And the documents that were moved from one location to another. Some put into folders marked personal and then brought inside the house. Some left outside by the Corvette. Some moved over to the office in DC. And so when you look at the, um, at the criminal statute which criminalizes willful retention of national security information, I think that you actually have a lot more evidence uh, in a lot of ways of willful retention there. And so If you're going to try to criminalize this behavior, um, you know, there's, there's multiple cases, but at the same time, is it a good idea to criminalize this or is it a better idea to just get all of these documents under government control, make sure that you, you know, you do an assessment to see whether there's been any damage, see whether any of it's been, you know, sold to business partners overseas or things like that. Um, but ultimately, you know, to contain it, can you actually indict a former president while allowing the current president to pass without any accountability whatsoever, or vice versa? Um, you know, i it's one of the reasons why I sit here and say I don't think that either one of them should be charged, because if one of them gets charged, then politically, you have to charge them both.
0: Yeah, I, I, th- I think that you make a terrific case. Uh, except, for, I, I have a question. Sure, and that is, the president, uh, President Trump, yes. has the power to de- declassify documents. Uh, he was the only one amongst those that had that power, because. Uh, he was he's contemporaneous to all of this. Uh, Joe Biden goes back 50 years, apparently 40 to 50 years. Uh, he not only had all of the places uh, that you described for the for the documents, the classified documents in his possession. But it, then it turns out what was it? Nine boxes were in his attorney Patrick's office up in Boston. Uh, that means a lot of people were looking at a lot of classified documents over that time. It, it, they surely weren't all class uh, had uh, appropriate security clearances. Uh, this is a mess that seems to me starts with the archivists uh, and with the the intelligence agencies themselves, because these documents should never have gone anywhere. They didn't know where they were going, and if they have no system to know whether they've been returned this is mindlessness well, of a in a, in a of a huge order there's another
1: aspect to this um i don't i don't know how much more time you have for the, before i open this Pandora's box but always uh, time for a pandora's box opening <laughs> you talk about classified material and yeah you know, of course i talk about documents with classification markings because a lot of these may have been declassified um But ultimately, the statute that we're looking at is silent as to classification. It talks about the willful retention of national defense information, uh, which is defined as something that, you know, that the. Individual um, has reason to believe the disclosure of which would be damaging to national security. Or helpful to our adversaries Uh, classification. All that is is evidence of somebody's opinion of whether it constitutes national defense information. Right. There is an epidemic of overclassification uh, in this country, and yeah, I saw some recent figures where the um, yeah nonprofit was challenging the declassification of certain documents and found that it was up to seventy percent overclassification. We don't classify things just because the disclosure of it would be damaging to national security oftentimes we classify things because they would be embarrassing and so really that's that's a whole separate issue of how many of these documents really should be classified how many of these documents really should still be classified i'll give you an example um i went through all 15 boxes that were returned to nara Um, and so I I saw all of the stuff that was in there. Um, I saw the sheets where they removed the marked documents, and and I'm not going to speak to the documents themselves, but when it comes to certain things, let's talk about schedules. Presidential schedule is often unclassified, but certainly there are sensitivities to it. Sometimes it is classified. For example, tomorrow we're going to fly to Afghanistan so you can have Thanksgiving dinner with the troops. That is a highly classified fact Sure, because the last thing we want the Taliban to know is that the juiciest target in the world is right about to fly overhead within RPG range, okay? But the moment he walks into the dining hall and is surrounded by all these troops and by all the TV cameras, the concept that he's flying to Afghanistan is no longer a state secret. So is the, is the daily schedule that he was given the day before this is tomorrow we're flying to Afghanistan,
0: should that still be classified? Well, I've just landed on one possibility and you, as you described why oftentimes uh, documents are classified, it's because they're embarrassing. Yeah. And I think nothing creates greater angst amongst the permanent bureaucracy, the deep state, uh, than the possibility of being embarrassed. Uh, and this looks to me like a case where the president was in possession of documents. The only thing that, to me, the only thing that makes any sense is that Merrick Garland, uh, President Biden, uh, Christopher Ray. Uh, must have created got gotten a hold of a pretty good case of agita over something that they thought was in the president's possession that uh, they didn't want out. A document
1: and, recovery operation related to uh, Crossfire Hurricane, perhaps.
0: That that's if if that would be right uh, right on. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I I,
1: I, I, have, was hoping, I, not, I was hoping I was hoping for an affirmative. Saying. I have not seen, I have not been given access to the documents that DOJ sees. So I, I can't, I, I can neither confirm nor deny because I lack the information. But I, you know, I will tell you that a lot of the stuff that I saw in, in NARA is very innocuous stuff. You know, it's like, and, and it, those boxes, they made so much sense as you're going through them because, you know, it's, it's the daily newspaper. It's his daily schedule um and sometimes you'd see okay so you know today you have a a call with president macron this afternoon uh and then there'd be you know a, a removal sheet there saying you know we've removed the classified you know briefing sheet in advance of your call with president macron and sometimes what those sheets are is um you know, you know let's let's set macron to the side for a second let's say that he was going to have a call with say um President Zelensky. And let's say that some Lieutenant Colonel on the National Security Council wrote up a script of these are the questions that this Lieutenant Colonel would like you to ask President Zelensky. Those questions would be the, you know, theoretically would be the classified briefing that of course, once he's asked those questions to, to President Zelensky, it's no longer classified because obviously we just told a foreign individual you know everything that was on that sheet um and i used that one for an example because obviously that was the subject of the first impeachment trial was that that particular lieutenant colonel got all agitated that um in listening to the call that the president didn't follow his script and didn't ask only the questions that the lieutenant colonel wanted the president to ask so um, so that that's a, a situation that, I, and I bring it up more just because it's something that we're familiar with. We saw in in the in the impeachment trial, um, but that's that's a lot of what this stuff is. And so it's not like it's it's stuff that would have been on his desk at the time that somebody then put into a box and then they taped it up and packed it away. It's you know, there's nothing about that that says, oh, you know, this is a secret that I want to hoard. You know, I, I want to I keep this because I think it's a great souvenir. It's, yeah. it, it goes back to the same thing. And I bet I would be willing to bet that the Biden docs and the Pence docs look very similar. And, uh, uh, you know, very innocuous stuff, not. You know, some of it probably should already be declassified. Some of it probably shouldn't have been classified to begin with.
0: Yeah, and uh, to think what this president went through in those final months of his presidency, uh, uh, because he was running for president, re-election to the presidency, uh, and uh, the national security uh, apparatus produced a letter uh, the intelligence community uh Fifty-one veterans signed a, a letter saying that the, the not that was
1: not that was not the national security apparatus. Those were fifty-one I, I, former I, people. They were outside of in, government.
0: Yeah, former intel.
1: They and, wrote a letter based explicitly saying that it was based on their collective experience and exposure to classified information over the course of their years of service. Uh-huh. That their analysis. Based on their access to classified information and their knowledge of classified Russian strategies was that it was Russian disinformation, something that was false. And something that was something that for them to have done that without first bringing it to the CIA and to these other agencies to say, hey, we would like to publish a letter. That is based on our former access to classified information. And since we've signed a non disclosure agreement that says we are not going to do that without providing you the opportunity to review it first, here, CIA, could you please review this letter to make sure we're not revealing something classified? They didn't do it, they violated their oath, they violated their contractual obligations to the United States. Um, you know, we filed complaints with all 50, with all the intel agencies. Um, you know, to have them investigate these people for violation of their non disclosure agreements. Um, violations of non disclosure agreements like that is something that, that does happen. Something that does get prosecuted. Um, you know, certainly it gets civilly enforced um, when it's the right person. You know, they started going after John Bolton with his book for failure to get it uh, properly cleared, and then the new administration liked what he had to say, so they dropped it. Uh, Matt um, full disclosure, a client of mine, he wrote a book about the night that he and his friends flew to Pakistan to kill bin Laden. Um, he, His publisher asked him not to get it reviewed because they wanted to rush it to print before Obama's reelection campaign. They gave him a lawyer who told him, you're allowed to do this. Huh. And then because it was embarrassing to the Obama White House, because it did not match the narrative that they wanted to put out through their Zero Dark Thirty movie and everything else, they went after him. a guy who had put his life on the line countless times for this country, a guy who had suffered injuries in combat, a guy who almost died many times, they destroyed his life, they brought him into court, they ended up taking everything from him, uh, taking all of his, um, all the revenue from the book to the government, all because they didn't like what he had to say, and yet these 51 violated the exact same agreement they did the exact same thing, and nothing has happened to them yet.
0: I wonder if it's because they were under orders from a from a former president. Uh, well if they if it was
1: something that was done in coordination with a campaign um, who then shortly thereafter became president, then that would be properly the subject of an investigation by the Federal Elections Commission.
0: But that didn't happen. Actually, it is happening. Well, it didn't happen in time. I'll put it that way. Uh, we, and,
1: filed, we filed the complaint. The investigation is
0: ongoing right now. And uh, when did you file a complaint? A couple of weeks ago. Okay. And, and what I'm talking about is the fall of 2020. Tim, it's been a great uh, honor to have you with us. We appreciate it. Enjoyed our conversation. We always give our guests the, the last word, and I do mean the last word, Uh, I will not no matter how tempted uh, (laughs) offer up a rebuttal or qualification of any kind uh, for your concluding thoughts, please. my, My concluding thoughts here really are that if you're going to go after
1: somebody, whether they are a politician or not, you have to do it cleanly. You have to do it in accordance with the law. And whenever prosecutors uh, DOJ steps outside of that and starts to uh, violate the law, violate the Constitution. Um, you know, you have lost the moral high ground, and if you're not going to do it cleanly, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. And you should expect that somebody like me is going to be standing in between you and and whoever you are trying to to go after with these unlawful tactics. Um, and that has nothing to do with any political party or any individual. That that applies across the board. So, um, the special counsel's office needs to really knock it off.
0: Well said, Tim Parlatori. Great to have you with us here on the Great America Show again. Thanks, and good luck to you and to, of course, President Donald Trump. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Here tomorrow, we take up the astonishing Pentagon leak of top secret intel documents. Documents that could affect the Ukrainians and their defense against the Russians. Intel on China and the Middle East that could have a major impact on U.S. foreign policy and national security. Former NSA intelligence analyst Russ Tice joins us here to assess those documents and what is wrong with this Biden regime and its many disasters. Please join us here tomorrow. Till then, God bless you and God bless America.